Thanks, Kyle. Uh, there is nothing more romantic than 106-degree Oklahoma heat. No showers. Lots of mud. Uh, no, but Sherwood's Fold is an amazing place. Good morning, guys. So good to be with you. Just going to check and see if we have the... I'm going to see if I need to look up my scripture here before I settle in. Whoops, there it is. Okay, good. Perfect. So, good morning. It's great to be here. And as already noted, this is both a spiritual and literal family reunion for us. So, uh, it is always amazing to be here. We love this community. And, uh, yeah, really do feel the deep family connection and belonging. And pray that, that this morning there would be a little bit of what Paul talks about in Romans 1 of mutual spiritual impartation. Uh, both us getting to be here with you and receive your encouragement and love and prayers and us getting able to share what God is doing. It's actually a, a really powerful thing. I was, and we were talking about doing a storytelling uh, night tomorrow night. And as we were kind of preparing for, for the first one of those we did this summer, uh, I was, I, that morning I was reading in the Psalms and there's this reference to talking about a generation who failed to sort of... Uh, respond to the Lord in their time. And it said that they forgot the works of the Lord. And I think that there's, it's made me realize that, that Mary and I are in a unique uh, position getting to do what we do in the Middle East, that we get to, we get to share the, the wonders of our God and what he's doing in a different place and with a different people with his body. And we need that. We need the reminder of we get in our own little world, but the reminder of, of who our God is and what he's doing uh, in places and in ways that we can't imagine. And so Mary and I have been in uh, Lebanon for 12 years uh, with our lovely family who's here, here with us this morning, Layla, our 13-year-old. And yep, yeah, that's her. Thanks, Gwen. That's, that's Layla. Uh, Sophia, our 11-year-old right there, and Hope, our 9-year-old. They are amazing, powerful young women and are an incredible part of our team and what we get to do. Uh, and we moved to the Middle East. Uh, it was never on my radar growing up, not something I daydreamed about when I was, you know, imagining possible future careers. But uh, it's, the, it's the story that God's called us into. And, and one thing I, I always like to say uh, is that we are compelled by a promise, not a burden. Uh, it's uh, certainly, there are plenty of things to feel burdened about, but it's hard to, to run your engine on burdens. <laughs> but God gives us promises, promises that inspire and stir and renew us. And we have believed for many, many years that God has a promise over the Middle East, uh, that, he is, that, that in our generation, we're going to see something historic in the Middle East. We're going to see the book of Acts renewed in the Middle East. And, uh, and that's been the promise that's compelled us. And that the, the incredible thing, I mean, if we, if, if we never saw that in our lifetime, if the whole point of our lives was to go and just to believe that that's what God wants to do and just carry that promise as we lived our lives and prayed and served our neighbors, it would be worth it. If we got to the end of our career and came home and didn't see anything, it would be worth it. It is, it is not about, you know, trying to accomplish objectives here. God wants to birth something through us, but we don't know if it's going to come to pass in our lifetime or not. That's not the point. Uh, but in our case, we are incredibly, our, our, our great joy is that we are beginning to see that promise come to pass. And we are able to look at the Middle East that we live in now and see that it's a different spiritual landscape than the one we moved to in 2009. Uh, that the spiritual hunger and openness that is happening in the Arab world today uh, among Muslim men, women, young people is something that, like, people who, who used to live in the Middle East imagined only happened in other countries. Uh, but God is doing something. He's doing something unprecedented. This week, uh, I've received, I'm a part of a, I'm, I, I'm a part of a ministry that does uh, media outreaches to unreached places. So just trying to do different things on media to get the gospel out to, to places that don't have access to churches. In this week, I've received updates of people in uh, this woman, or this morning I received an update. Someone was forwarding a message from a woman in Algeria saying, can you please help me follow Jesus? There's no, I live in Algeria, there's no churches or believers around me, uh, but I need someone to help me figure out how to follow him. I know he's the way. 
Now, I've gotten multiple of those messages this week. Uh, and these type of stories were like, if, if they happened in like the early 2000s, someone would write a book about them. Uh, you know, or go on CBN and get interviewed, and it would be like, can you believe it? Uh, and, and now these things are happening weekly. God is transforming the spiritual atmosphere. And at the same time, as you might be aware of, this era in which we've lived in the Middle East is one of incredible suffering. Incredible suffering. Uh, we've uh, witnessed in our short tenure uh, the Syrian refugee crisis. We've witnessed people who suffered in the hands of ISIS. We've witnessed in Lebanon a complete economic collapse, uh, the, the August 4th port explosion. Uh, we've, in more recent months, have witnessed a devastating earthquake in Turkey. And in the midst of this incredible historic, and I do mean it when I say historic, guys, more Muslims have come to faith in the first two decades of this century than in all of history combined. By far, there is no comparison. So we are living in a great awakening in the Muslim world, a, a, something unprecedented. And, I, and right now, we are only seeing the seeds of it. In a generation, those churches, those believers are going to come to the surface and they will amaze us with what God has done. And they will have much to teach us of what it means to follow Jesus. So we are in the, mo the middle of it. And at the same time, unbelievable chaos and suffering. And so it's with those two things uh, in our hearts that we share with you this morning. And I, I want to just read a couple of passages and, and reflect on them. Uh, so we'll start with John 12, 20 through 28. Now there were some Greeks among them who were going up to worship at the feast. These people then came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida of Galilee, and were making a request of him, saying, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip came and told Andrew, then Andrew, and Philip came and told Jesus. But Jesus answered them by saying, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it, bear, it bears much fruit. The one who loves his life loses it. And the one who hates his life in this world will keep it to eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there my servant will be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Um, and I think, let me just add something maybe not fit in there. But, there's, but it ends with this passage where Jesus says, uh, What then shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. No. It is for this hour that I have come. Father, glorify your name. Second passage. This is Romans 8, 18 through 27. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the eagerly awaiting creation waits for the revealing of the sons and daughters of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself also would be set free from its slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. And not only that, but we ourselves, having the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons and daughters, the redemption of our body. For in hope we have been saved, but hope that is not seen is uh, hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what he already sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, through perseverance we wait eagerly for it. Now in the same way, the Spirit also helps our weakness. For we do not know what to pray for as we should. But the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches the hearts knows what the mind of the Spirit is. Because he intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. That's a lot of scripture. Let's explore these two images one at a time. I, I think that there's a connection between these two images. And I think both John, both Jesus in the gospel of John and Paul 
are giving us an, are giving us images of what this life, this one we're living, actually is, and what it's actually about. And it's important because we often get stuck with the wrong images in our head about what this life is and what it's about. And and I, I my prayer is that the Lord would, through these stories, renew and, and clarify what the meaning is of this life we're living. You know, Jesus says that that this life, this one life we're given, is right about be, being a seed. A seed that lays itself down, a seed that dies, that falls in the ground. And if we don't do that, he actually says we remain alone, which is interesting language. But that when we lay ourselves down, give our life away, empty ourselves as Jesus did, right? That then and only then do we bear fruit. And he goes on in that then therefore to say, right, in this moment where he's about to face uh, the cross, what should I say? Should I say what any human being literally would say? Please rescue me from this. Please get me out of this mess. No. Father, glorify your name. Jesus, or Paul then, gives us another image here. Whoops, let's go back. Paul gives us another image, right? This image of birthing, of groaning. So much groaning in this passage. Now, the groaning Paul's talking about, this is the same word. He's, he's pulling this word from the Greek translation of the Old Testament. This is the word that it uses to describe what the slaves in Egypt did when they cried out to God for, to be rescued from Pharaoh. They, they're gro- when, when God speaks to Moses, he says, the groanings of my people have reached me. And this is the word that Paul picks up and puts in the middle of this passage. That we in this life are groaning, but our groaning is birthing something. And I think that it's, it's an important, important images because when you, if you look throughout history, there's, you know, the philosophers all the way back to ancient time, passing through history up to today, have been wrestling with kind of the same fundamental question. And the question they're wrestling with is, how do I live the good life? How do I live the good life? You have, you know, in the ancient times, basically there's like the same schools of thought that existed 2,000 years ago exist today. You know, the philosophers back then, you know, and and philosophers, by the way, were the people who had the the means and the leisure to think about what type of life they were living. Most of humans throughout history don't get that. They don't get career choices. They don't get uh, to decide if this isn't the direction I want to head. I'm going to go ahead and make a switch now. Uh, But just like... Many of us in this room, philosophers in the ancient world, were the few that had the, the means to, to make those type of choices. And they wrestled with this idea of what is the good life? Am I doing it right? Is this, is this the best life I could be possibly living or is there a better one out there? Am I missing it somehow? And they were haunted by this question, right? And so you had two schools of thought. The most famous one that is still influencing us today would be the Epicureans. And we think of Epicureans as like just party animals. That's how we use the word now. But But what Epicureans actually believed was that the goal was to have, to to protect at all costs your peace of mind. To have a nice, ordered, calm, pleasant life. A life protected from the chaos of out there and whatever goes on out there. Uh, A life that is lived with equanimity and, you know, relaxation. And that the goal was to enjoy this, this one life as much as you possibly can. And in their various forms, Epicurean thought uh, has come to dominate in incredible ways the way we think about life today in, in modern secular society, right? Can we, just, can we just carve out a little peace of mind? Can, can I just create some, some protection here from the chaos out there? Can I just relax a little bit, please? And... Uh, the opposite to, to Epicureans was the Stoics, you know, and the Stoics were like, well, life, life is about doing your duty. It's about being an upstanding citizen. It's about civic virtue. It's about, you know, uh, these type of things. And, and weirdly enough, though Stoicism isn't historically the most popular thing, it's making a huge comeback right now. I have Lebanese teenagers who like read Marcus Aurelius. So bizarre, but Why? Because now, even now, there's, in the world, people are desperate to figure out. People are feel lost. Their philosophies have betrayed them. 
they've, they've tried to carve out their peace of mind and find it empty and pointless and numbing. And now they're trying to, f- they're searching, saying, no, we're not doing it right. How do we live the good life? Well, here's the powerful thing to me as I reflect on these passages. What these passages show me is that the question, how do I live the good life? Or let me say it differently. How do I live the best life I can live? That question is foreign to scripture. And it's irrelevant to both Jesus and Paul. The question the scripture asks is what type of seed is God making my life into? And what is God birthing through my life? This is what life is. And this first line says it all. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to revealed to us. Now, I'm going to do something very dangerous now. I'm going to ask for some, some grace in advance. I'm going to, as a man, make a childbirth analogy. I'm, Paul got away with it. I hope you allow me the same. Uh, so here's the thing about childbirth. I, for, for, so I've heard. <laughs> Retreat. Um, so... I mean, you can have, you can have, if, from when I, when I hear women share their birth stories, right, this is a depth of pain that no one else will understand. It, it is, un, it is a, an incredibly, shockingly painful experience to be so commonly universal among so many people throughout history. And, and as, as dramatic and painful as that experience is, how many mothers could you line up and say, okay, uh, how painful is childbirth? Uh, very painful. Okay. Now, think about the child you gave birth to. Was it worth it? Can you imagine a mother looking at like their three-year-old, eight-year-old, 16-year-old, 25-year-old, 35-year-old child, a lifetime of love and connection, and saying, oh, but it, was it worth it? It hurt so bad. It was so miserable. Was it worth it? Well, obviously, that's a stupid comparison. No mother's ever even entertained the thought, right? Why? Well, you can, you can compare childbirth, perhaps. I'm not saying it's a good comparison, but one can try to compare it maybe to a horrible kidney stone or climbing Mount Everest. But you can't compare childbirth to having a child, right? Paul says, I consider the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is revealed to us. In other words, our short lives, guys, our short, brief lives that the writer of Ecclesiastes says are vapor passing away. Our short lives cannot be compared to what our short lives are giving birth to. Our 8, 12, 16, 24, 48 hours of childbirth cannot be compared to the lifetime of love and connection that is having a child. How much more, how much more is our lives in their, in their brevity, in their pain, in their suffering, when surrendered and partnered to the Spirit of God, giving birth to something that far outweighs them, something that can't be put on the scales with them, right? It's like putting a monster truck on the scales with a feather. You wouldn't do it. You don't need to, right? What is this life? How much time do we waste thinking about the good life when we're in childbirth? We are birthing something, and our pain is not meaningless, and it's not something we run from. It's a place we meet God. It's a place where we say, God, in these groanings, don't let them harden me. Make them a place of birth. Now, this, this image here, right, this, this concept of life, here's the problem. We don't see it with the lens zoomed in. When we're staring at the moment of groaning, we don't see the 16-year-old child, right? We can't see it. We are stuck in this zoomed-in moment in which we live. And so it's, there, there are these moments when God allows us to step back and see the bigger picture and give us courage and faith to dive back in and say, no, I'm not going to lose the plot. 
I'm not going to climb off the laboring table. I'm going to birth what God wants to birth through my life. Now, I had one of these moments uh, just this spring. I was in Rome with my daughter, Layla, and uh, we were you know, trying to see some of the sites, and I had purchased this kind of day pass that gets you into different places, and I, I went to go pick it up at this office, and I'm at the office, and I'm looking around, and I'm like, hey, what is this place? And they're like, oh, it's the Carcer Maximus. It's Rome's maximum penitentiary. And I was like, oh, cool. And they're like, yeah, Peter and Paul were in prison down there. And I thought, oh, okay, I'm going to check it out. So we walked down. So you actually literally descend some stairs to a small, dark stone room where history tells us, tradition tells us, at different times, both Peter and Paul sat in a windowless stone cell underneath the earth, literal seeds. And, you know, you're sitting down there, and I'm just trying to picture, you know, Peter in chains praying the Lord's Prayer. You know, Paul in chains reciting the Psalms, groaning. Now, with the camera zoomed in, you would have said that these were fools and that their life was meaningless. In fact, that's actually what the point of the cross was meant to communicate. When Rome would crucify its enemies, the message was, you're meaningless. You're powerless. You're humiliated. Only... Only Rome, only empire, only strength and prosperity. These things live. You fools are nothing. And if you were to live with the camera zoomed in, and you were to stare at these two Jewish peasants, well, Paul's a little more than a peasant, but you get the point, in Rome, under the ground, in a cell, reciting the psalms of their ancestors, praying the prayers of their rabbi, you would say... This is the epitome of not living the good life. And, but what's crazy is, when you come up out of that prison, you come up out into the light of day, you walk out the door, and you know what you don't see all around you? You don't see statues of Caesar. You see cathedrals. You see a civilization shaped by these seeds. Now, when Paul is in prison, when he's praying his prayers, when he's on his face, there's no way he could have seen the big picture. He could hope, as he says, he could trust that he was giving birth to something he couldn't imagine. But he couldn't see it. He couldn't, he couldn't know it the way we now know it. In fact, N.T. Wright argues that the number one, I find this so comforting, that the number one concern and anxiety of Paul's life was whether or not he had labored in vain. Look for that phrasing in Paul's writing. Paul is constantly, because you got to imagine, Paul's sitting in prison in Rome, and he had had quite a career already. But the Corinthians couldn't have been like the greatest encouragement in the world to his heart, right? He's got these house churches that are just a mess. Uh, he's got constant, you know, things go well for a few years, and then he has a falling out with Barnabas, and then he, you know, and there's so much brokenness and so much disappointment, and can you believe, is that woman his, like, mother-in-law, what's going on over there, and another shout out to the Corinthians, but, and you got to imagine Paul sitting in prison saying, is any of it worth it, and then he stirs up his soul, and then he invites the Holy Spirit, and then he prays the prayers of his ancestors, and he gets back on the birthing table. When you, when you zoom in, you can't see it. You can't see it. It's fragile. Seeds are fragile things. Our lives are fragile things. We can't, we, we can't imagine that we're in control of what they produce. But we can fall to the ground and die. We can get on the birthing table. Uh, a, a, just a couple days later, uh, Layla and I visited the, the catacombs on the outskirts of Rome. You go underneath the ground, you see all this ancient Christian art, art depicting uh, hands raised in thankfulness. I don't know where else in the world you would find an underground seminary, cemetery, where, and seminary, uh, where you would see so many depictions of thankfulness. It's, un, it's, just, it's staggering to see. 
And the lady giving the tour tells us that, well, before persecution was lifted, half a million Christians were buried down here. Half a million seeds. Now, would they have said they were living the good life? Were they, would they have said, man, I was such a success. My ministry thrived. Is that their, would that have been their paradigm? I don't think so. But they were caught up in a bigger story and generation after generation in faithfulness laid their lives down and these seeds changed a civilization. So I, I find these stories deeply encouraging because they echo just a bit of, of, of what Mary and I live in our own lives. Uh, I, I remember coming to the Middle East uh, in 2009 and, you know, talking to, to other missionaries and, and it being so unusual when someone would come to faith. And yet we'd meet and we'd pray and we'd stir up our faith and we would pray these prayers that sometimes felt like fantasy. They felt like, uh, they felt like sort of spiritual sci-fi, uh, you know, like looking out the window, God, send dreams and visions, call people to yourself, God, raise up the Muslim background church. And it just felt so far-fetched. And yet we felt the groaning inside of us to pray for these things. And so we would pray. I have a friend, uh, a friend who's, a, who's an Irish missionary. He's been in the Middle East about five years, probably longer than we have. He lived in Damascus for a period of time. He said, in the time that I lived in Damascus, you could look around, like you could gather all the missionaries. They would gather for a prayer meeting, like every single missionary they knew in Damascus. And they would meet and they would pray. And he's like, that time, between all of us, if we were just to count up the Muslim background believers we knew existed in Syria, we could count them on one hand. But they'd pray. God, bring awakening. God, turn the tide. God, change the spiritual atmosphere. And they, and they would pray as generations of missionaries in, this, in, this part of the, in that part of the world had prayed before them. Last month, me and that Irish friend, uh, we helped facilitate a conference to equip Muslim background Syrians to pray for Syria. Muslim background believers. We prayed for a week with between 50 and 60 Muslim background men and women, Syrians who have come to faith in the last three years. And they're praying that God would bring awakening. It's not just us sitting in our little room wondering if anything's happening, right? These guys are, are praying and, and, you know, for their own country. And my friend who, my friend who has seen this whole, you know, progression is just stunned that I can't believe I'm living long enough to see some of these prayers answered, but they're only a drop, Right? of what God's giving birth to. Uh, we, we've, many years ago, but when the Syrian crisis first hit, uh, we were praying for an opportunity to, to serve Syrians. It's Mary, who's about to, you're, you're about to come up and share. Just a second. Brace yourself. Uh, Mary, whose heart is for, the, is for refugees and for disaster relief, uh, you know, was, has a nursing degree, was just kind of, her heart was burning, longing to, to find a way to reach these people. And they were coming into the country, but we didn't know we didn't even have an, an outlet on how to serve them or whatever. And God began to open doors. And one of the women we met, who our team has journeyed with and our friend has discipled for about eight, nine, ten years now, she recently, she started, she came to faith and started leading other women to faith. Well, this spring, I'm just jumping ahead. Full version, tomorrow night in the story, in the fireside room. Just this spring, our Syrian refugee friend who met Jesus, uh, that we originally met through some of the clinics that Mary organized, went back on a visit to some of the women she's discipled who went back to Syria. Track with me. Sorry, it's a lot of details. She, it's a remote, unreached area of Syria that previously would have had very few, before the war would have had very few Christians. She went back to visit them and to check on these believers. And they gathered 50 women who they'd been discipling who were prepared to be baptized. They had a mass baptism of 50 women in the, on the outermost parts of Syria, an area that had been controlled by ISIS. And this, so, so all that to say, with the camera zoomed in, there are so many moments that just feel like a joke, that feel like nothing's happening, that feel like we're praying, you know, just crazy imaginary things into the air. But the camera zooms out and you realize that we are, we, the people of God are giving birth to something. In the mundane, in the groaning, in the faithfulness, we're giving birth to something. Mary? It's my lovely wife, Mary. Okay. 
Well, he jumps to it first. Okay, so like Drew said, my name is Mary. I just this spring got to finish a master's degree in humanitarian disaster leadership, which was awesome, from Wheaton College. And as I'm finishing the degree, and kind of as Drew's saying, I'm holding before the Lord this dream and desire of like engaging in disasters, which happens a lot in Lebanon. So it's like, I know I'm going to be doing it in Lebanon, but also like, okay, Lord, what do you want to do in this degree? Do that with me. Um, the earthquake hits in Turkey and Syria. Um, so a little, I'm sure all of you guys saw it, but I'm giving a little bit more context for it. Um, it where it was in Turkey, where it happened, it was 140,000 square miles. So the size of Germany, 59,000 people were killed and 14 million people affected. Um, I think I have a map. Yeah. Okay. So um, it's, this is Turkey. It's this, that's the area, the magnitude, and you can see it's really close to Syria. And the area of Turkey that got affected um, is an area that is got a lot of radicals in it. There's not really we could barely find any missionaries that were currently working there because they'd all been kicked out. Um, the, the border with Syria right there is where ISIS was going in for a long time. So it's a, it's a really like unreached, dark place where not that people have worked there over the years, but have gotten kicked out, gotten put in prison. And then the earthquake hits. So all of a sudden there's a moment, there's a moment that we get to respond and the church gets to go in. And so kind of, in, I'll, I'll fast forward again, if you want more stories about this, come tomorrow night. Um, but I get invited as a nurse to be on the first response team. And so I get to go to Turkey. And so it's, we like start preparing day three. I don't arrive on the ground in the moment where the earthquakes hit till day five and um, are able to bring the presence of Jesus. And the thing that it's like, I'm a nurse, I'm equipped. I've got the you know, the skills to be able to respond just like a lot of other amazing NGOs. But the thing that's so different is that I'm carrying Jesus. And so even as we were praying this morning and worshiping about, I will follow you, I think that yes in our heart to go in these moments opens up doors that we can't imagine. It does things in the spiritual realm that we, we don't even know what's happening. And like Drew's saying, it's like laying down that seed and it's just amazing what the Lord does. So what was really shocking, or actually, you can go back to that. Um, what was really shocking is this Turkey is, they speak Turkish. They don't speak Arabic, and I speak Arabic. But the area of Turkey that was affected, the Hatay region, all spoke Arabic. So it used to be a former territory of Syria. So there's all in the streets as we're going through and doing first aid and, and working through, seeing rescue teams, people are grabbing me holding me, sobbing. I'm praying. And then I would just ask them, can I pray over you? They would, some of them begged me to pray for them. I'm praying over them and having these incredible moments. And, and I, and the Lord knew it all. I speak Arabic. I've got the, you know, I've got the skills to be there. It was, it was actually incredible. Um, and we can just go to the next, there we go. So one of my favorite stories is the story of Rakaya. Um, we started, go, we started jumping in our cars and going to more rural areas to see places that felt like they were under-resourced. Some of the bigger cities had really amazing resources, lots of aid. So we started going into areas that felt like no one was going to be helping. And um, we just come from and ended up finding all these Syrian refugees. So in the area affected by the earthquake, there's four to six million Syrian refugees. Turkey did an amazing job, I thought. <laughs> People are, this is controversial. But I thought they did a great job compared to Lebanon uh, in their response. But they did a really great job even helping with their people. But they... 100% neglected Syrians. So Syrians were not getting aid, were not getting help, and had rebuilt their lives from the war, and then it was shattered again. So we would, so this particular group in the up in the left corner, we walk in. There's a tent, very small tent, housing 81 people. And at the day before, two sister-in-laws had given birth to a, to babies in the tent because all the hospitals are either damaged or full. So I was I was able to see the babies do a you know newborn baby assessment. I mean it was wild. Well, this little girl, her name's Rukaya, she's 11, she's same, same age as Via, and, um, and she's been vomiting and having diarrhea. There's no clinic to take her, there's no hospitals, they're all full or damaged, and they're really worried about her. They tried to take her somewhere, they were denied, and she looked, and she looked sick. So I'm, I'm doing an assessment, I'm looking at her, but I can kind of quickly tell that it is actually trauma. Like it, it didn't feel like it was a virus or anything. And so I just sit with her and I'm talking with her mom and I ask her if I can pray for her. And I just kind of, you know, interact with her and really honestly just feel like I'm being Jesus in that moment to her. 
and, um, and pray over her. And then um, this doesn't always get to happen, but the next day we were able to go and give them like 12 tents so that each family could have their own tent. And she runs out to me, okay? And she, and she's, so it was like super odd to see the girl who I thought probably needs an IV, has been, you know, vomiting and having diarrhea for a few days. And then all of a sudden it's running out to me and she's like, after you prayed, she calls me doctora, after you prayed, I've been healed, you know? And they're all like, look, look at her. Um, And so that opened the door to this community. So I've now gone back five times and every time I go to this community and we're doing Bible studies with them, there's been more healings inside of this community. It's just so powerful to just, again, respond and then see what the Lord opens up. So. Okay. Sorry. Um, I did a similar thing after the explosion where I was doing relief work. And um, as, you know, as I'm doing relief work, I started um, asking the women what they actually really needed. They said they needed trauma healing. So we did trauma healing Bible studies. And then from there, they really actually needed livelihood. There's been an economic collapse in Lebanon. A lot of their husbands don't have work. So we trained Syrian and Lebanese women in doing um, handmade goods. And I have some of them out. So after the service, if you guys want, you can come and check them out and help support some of these Syrian refugees. Awesome. When we think of the stories of some of these women like this and and the families affected by the earthquake, uh, the refugees been working with for so many years. It's just to come back to something I was saying earlier. Uh, you know, if we feel the pressure that our, our goal is to give them the good life, uh, we get into all types of, of destructive uh, patterns of relating, and we, you know, end up wearing ourselves out and burning out. But we can invite them that, that whether or not, it, I wish that they could live better lives than the ones that, that they're able to live in these circumstances. But at the end of the day, we're all just enduring our short period of birthing. They are, we are able to invite them to participate in birthing something eternal through their one life. And that far, and that paradigm just changes the way you see people, the way you see the world, the way you see life. And so now these women, though they're still, their lives are so hard they have purpose. They have meaning. They, their lives and their pain is giving birth to something. They're helping others find healing. And it's, this is the kingdom. So let me just go back to this scripture, and I'm going to f- wrap this up. Because I re- so I recognize at this point uh, that the stories we're telling and the paradigms, they can feel a little bit unrelatable. I get that. Uh, but the good news is, maybe we're sitting here listening today saying, yeah, that's beautiful. I actually don't know what that means for me today. I don't know what the invitation is or what that looks like. Uh, well, there's good news because the end of this passage here. Now, in the same way, the Spirit also helps our weakness. For we do not know what to pray for as we should. But the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. So when you look up this word groanings in Strong's commentary, uh, it describes it as a deep emotional expression of grief, anger, and desire. A deep emotional expression of grief, anger, and desire. For 2,000 years, the Holy Spirit has led the church How does he do it? How does the Holy Spirit lead? I believe the primary way way he leads is he groans within his people. He longs inside of us. Jesus says the Holy Spirit takes what, he says the Spirit will take what is mine and give it to you. Well, guess what? There's no human being who walked the planet more filled with grief, anger, and desire than Jesus Christ. How could he not? He's the one who sees how it should be. The one who sees more clear than anyone else what has been taken from us. The one who sees the oppression and the the selfishness and the, the, the spiritual principalities that keep the world this way. How could he not be moved 
all the time with grief and with anger and desire. The one who longs for you and me more than we could ever long for our own good. The one who, who longs as a bridegroom longs for his bride for a world made new and, re, and reunited. That Jesus is the man of groaning. The Hebrews says that with great groanings he made his petitions before God. Mark describes him praying for a blind man. Putting his hands on him and, say, and, and groaning deeply before pro, uh, proclaiming his healing. Jesus is the man of groaning. And the first step for you and me, uh, where does this road, where does the road of birthing, what God wants to birth through our lives take us? Where does becoming the seed take us? I don't know. I don't know what that means for me or for you, but I know where it starts for all of us. It starts in a place of union with Jesus, a place of, of opening our hearts to the Holy Spirit saying, Lord, let me teach me to pray. Let me groan the way you groan. Let me see the world the way you see the world. Birth love in me. It's the opposite of the Epicurean in his nice garden contemplating the finer things of life. It is the heart of the, the groaning man in the prison who's longing for a world made new. And that's what Jesus invites us to be a part of. So I'm just going to pray for us. Uh, and as we transition to communion, I want to pray that, that as we commune with Jesus, as we draw near to him, that we would welcome into the deepest part of our being the spirit of Jesus. That we would give permission to groan with his grief and anger and desire. His longings for a world set free and made new. So Lord, we come to you this morning and we thank you. We thank you that our, our momentary suffering is not worthy of comparison with the glory that will be revealed to us. Thank you that each one of us is invited to lay our lives down as a seed, to climb, uh, to take our place and climb on the birthing table and to give birth to whatever you want to birth through our life, lives, God. Where we, uh, I just invite you, Holy Spirit, where we feel hardened, I just invite you to soften us again. Where we've built, where we've been given that, that, been in that moment like Jesus and said, Father, just save me from this hour, please. Self-preservation, thank you. God, would you give us hearts that say, Lord, glorify your name. Groan in me. We give this brief life, you know, with to the best that we can, we, we give it again as a gift to you, Jesus. You are worthy. Thank you, Drew. We're going to respond to what we've heard with a thing we can do in response to Jesus, what he asked us to do. Let's go back to that John 12 passage, if we could. I drew used. Maybe I could. Oh, I can do it. There we go. Or maybe not. Yeah, here we go. I want to notice something on this. Jesus says, truly I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. And here, here's the thing that helps us frame when we hear stories from Drew and Mary. Uh, it's ex important for us to say, yes, I want to partner with what they're doing. What, that's awesome what they're doing. But I hope you catch that's not the point of this message. 
The point of this message is this is an example of what a seed that is dying bears fruit. Does that make sense? Because what you're talking about is 15 years of just daily stuff and having to get back on the birthing table. Have you guys had one or two boring days? One or two days that seem like this is not a missionary job. Did you know the book of Acts covers over 30 years of history? 30 years. You can count the miracles. It's like one every other year. If you read the book of Acts that way. So the point is, do you want to be a seed? Do you want to be a seed? Did anybody feel that inspiration of that Drew was saying something I was made for beyond just having a good life? Whatever that even means. Well, then Jesus says this, the one who loves his life loses it. But the one who hates or rejects his life in this world is the one who will keep it to eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. Where I am, there my servant will be also. If anyone serves me, my Father will honor him. So Jesus says, if you want a life as a seed, do what I do. Do what I do. So let's let's, go to the communion scriptures. Jesus specifically asked us, on a regular basis, Paul's re- remembering this. I received from the Lord Jesus what I passed on to you. On the night he was betrayed, he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it, said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And then he took the cup, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death. You proclaim the planting of Jesus as a seed until he comes. So when we take communion, what we do is we say, Jesus, first of all, thank you that I can't make my life be something. I can't be connected to my purpose, which is to be in fellowship with God. It's only through Jesus giving his life away, spilling his blood, that we can be forgiven and restored from our separation from God. So here's the great news over and over again. If you're like, I, I don't know if I can even become a seed. I don't know if I can say yes to sacrifice. Me neither. I read these things and I've I feel like myself, yeah, that's really good, but I don't know if I really want that. Here's the response to that. Jesus, help. That's what we're doing in community. We're coming to Jesus to say, through your blood, you've made it possible for me to become what I could never be on my own. To do for me what I could never do for myself. You forgive me of my shortcomings and failures, and you give me a new life. And so what I want us to wonder about here is what kind of seed the Lord wants to make us in this moment. As we take communion of this act of saying, yeah, okay, Jesus, make me a seed. Paul says to examine yourself while you're doing this moment. If you look at the context of that, it's not examine yourself so you can clean yourself up to be a good seed. It's examine yourself where you think you can do it on your own. That was the problem the Corinthians were having. They were ignoring what Jesus had done. In the base, some of them were getting drunk on their way or in communion, seeking the good life. Instead, he says, oh, no, examine yourself. Are you trying to save yourself? Are you trying to write your own story? Instead, will you come powerless and naked? to the cross of Jesus Christ with nothing and to say, will you help me? Make me a seed. So let's just, let's just ask the Lord that now. Let him search our hearts for their self-sufficiency or maybe our story, maybe our life narrative is, I just want a good life. I've got that all in my bones, guys. I'll be the first to confess it. 
that I just want a good life. But, but the problem is I haven't seen the beauty of Jesus enough to say, I want to be the seed that you've called me to be. Let's ask Now let's take the elements. You should have received one of these or seen on your chair one of these little cups here. The top, you got to split, split the, you know, plastic apart. I always tell people that I don't want you to eat anything plastic, okay? We don't want to have to do anything. We have a, we have a nurse here, I guess, if it gets really bad. But let's take, take this wafer, this representative Jesus' body that was broken for us and say, Jesus... I receive this for my wholeness and my healing, your brokenness for my wholeness. Let's take it together. And now let's take this cup. Guys, in our worship series, we've been talking about Jesus as the atoning sacrifice for our sins. It's the blood where the life is. It's the giving away the life that actually cleanses us. It's like the detergent to cleanse us of our self-sufficiency, our self-saving actions. Say, I can't do it. Jesus, will you save me? So let's, let's let him make us a seed now as we take this to cleanse us and consecrate us. Take it together. Let's stand together, and we're going to close by singing a song. It's that familiar song that we just sang, I have decided to follow Jesus. And I, I'd heard Brian mention, he said, I think there's some kind of crazy history to this song. So I looked it up while we were singing it. And in short, here's the history. About 150 years ago, there was a man in a state of India called Assam. And, and, and he and his family had come to faith in Jesus, but nobody in their village had. So the village chief came to this family, put them in front of the village and said, renounce your faith. Renounce your faith or we're going to put you guys to death. And the dad said, I have decided to follow Jesus. And so they killed his two children in front of him. He said, the village chief said, okay, renounce your faith. Your wife's going to join them too. He said, though none go with me, still I will follow. And they killed his wife. He said, you've got nothing left. We're going to kill you unless you renounce your faith. He said, the cross before me, the world behind me, no turning back. And they killed him. But the miracle that happened with this seed is the village chief, after this had happened, said, I don't know why they did this, but I think we should all follow Jesus. And the villagers converted to the faith to follow Jesus through that seed. Could, that, that, those guys never knew, right? That was just the end. And so these words became enshrined in, in this area and it was eventually put to song and it was the 1950s not that long ago Can we, do we have the strength in ourselves to say these things? no, but if we come to Jesus the vision of Jesus he gives us what we need to follow him so can we finish today with singing these pretty profound words I've decided to follow Jesus to follow Jesus I've decided to follow Jesus I've decided 
to follow Jesus, no turning back, no turning back, the world behind me, the cross before me, the world behind me, the cross cross before me, no turning back, no turning back, no, though none go with me, though none go with me, still I will follow, though none go with me, still I will follow, though none go Lord, I, I know, Jesus, that even just the slightest move toward you delights your heart, that it was love that led you to the cross. It was affection for us, and that the most powerful force, the most powerful motive in the world is love. So, Lord, will you continue to reveal your beauty, Jesus? that we might find that we are so insanely loved that the greatest privilege we have is to love you back. The privilege to love you back so that sacrifice doesn't seem like sacrifice when you're in the middle of romance. We need you, Jesus. Lift every bit of fear, worry, self-effort, heroism off of our hearts. We might just be dependent on you, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. A couple things I want us to remind us of. One is, Josh and Kara Mosby, can you stand over here in front of the baptismal? We have about a thousand Afghans. Is that the right number? Did I read my... We have about a thousand refugees in, in our city who need friends. And it's through friendship people meet Jesus. These guys have been spending time, just hours and hours helping people in another country that don't know what to do. You don't have to go to, the, you don't have to, go to Afghanistan. They came here. So if anybody feels like Jesus wants to work in you, come talk to these guys after this, okay? If you're just saying, I want to know what to do today, the Lord's answering your prayer. Um, also, let's join in what, with what Drew and Mary are doing, right? So there's a table right outside of our doors here that have, the, it's so cool, through trauma relief, these ladies are earning a living. They're making, you know, purses and things are really cool. You can buy some of those things, but also there's ways, let's just give these guys a bunch of money because uh, they need it to do the stuff they're doing over there. So there's information right outside the door and then tomorrow night, We'll have a deal at seven. Okay. Okay. And John, the good pastor that he is. So let's just, let's just kind of quietly exit because it feels like there's some people just meeting Jesus in here right now and maybe just needs, need, need to take a little more time letting the Lord mess with our hearts. Okay. That sound good. So that means, you know, be friendly, but if you want to shout, do it in the hallway. Okay. All right, we love you guys. Have a what great week. Oh, something else.
And accounting is telling us if you're going to give money, make sure you put in the memo line, this is for Drew and Mary, okay? Okay, thank you. Family biz. All right, love you guys. Have a great day. 7 o'clock tomorrow night.